this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode with Guido Molinari from the Prism Group. Guido is a multi-industry business leader and entrepreneur who has co-founded ventures in the blockchain consumer goods and retail space. He's a former investment banker at Merrill Lynch and has been a visiting lecturer in entrepreneurship at Columbia Business School and the London School of Economics. This was a great conversation that we had at San Francisco Blockchain Week. Thanks again to the folks at the BlockWorks Group for signing this up. Uh, we had a great conversation about the confluence of economics and blockchains. And what does that mean? How does that all work? And so we talked about token economics a lot. And we talked about how the role of economics and blockchains can mean many different things. It talks about incentive models like we just talked about. It talks about user adoption, looking at the, the numbers there. So there's this really interesting confluence between economics and modeling of data and blockchains and different different digital assets. So this was a great conversation. We also talked about some theories like contract theory and social choice theory. Really, really interesting conversation. I will apologize, though. We were in the uh, speaker's lounge for San Francisco Blockchain Week. It was a little loud. There were some folks that were talking before their agenda items uh, before their speeches. Um, but we did have a great conversation, which you'll be able to hear with Guido. So remember, nothing on base layer is investment advice. So please do your own research. And on the flip side, you're going to hear a great conversation with Guido Molinari from the Prism Group. Enjoy. So we're here, you know, talking about how the confluence of economics and about blockchain and about digital assets are coming together. So Prism Group is really doing some interesting work, especially in economics and that marriage of blockchain. So if you could, we always like to do on base layer is talk a little bit about the who, the what, and the why. So give us a little bit of background about yourself, uh, Guido, you know, and the Prism Group. How did you kind of come about into this world of blockchain and distributed centralized technology? And what is Prism Group? Excellent. So first of all, a very short background on myself. I'm a former investment banker. I started my career at Merrill Lynch and then did a series of ventures over the year after after leaving. And uh, um, my wife is an economist. A lot of my friends are economists. And um, we um, started looking at blockchain really in the hype of 2017, mm -hmm. simply because so many people we trusted smart people started saying, hey, you should really look at this technology. Uh, you know, of course, the crypto market helped to attract right. attention. And uh, at the time, uh, my wife was the chief economist at ZipRecruiter, and you know, a lot of our friends were economists in tech companies. Mm -hmm. uh, tech companies in the last like, 15 years have been hiring economists by the hundreds. Mm -hmm. um, so we're very familiar to what is the role of economists in technology companies. Right. You know, what is the role of, of economists at Uber or Airbnb or Amazon or Google? And we looked at this new technology and we thought, okay, this is going to be maybe like AI where, you know, there's a lot of economists already working on AI, in AI yeah, companies. And, you know, I started going to a few meetings and talking to people and meeting process and say, okay, who's, who's your economic team? You know, what, 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 what are you guys doing about, you know, the incentives, the token economics, you know, if you think about blockchain as sort of a mini economy written in code, like who's helping on the numbers? And the answer was like, oh, we haven't really thought about that. You know, like we have a lot of talent with the computer science, we're a cryptographer, we're software engineers, we're lawyers. 
we don't really have any economists. So we're like, oh, okay, this is interesting. And we start taking a closer look at the value that the technology brings to the table. We're like, okay, this is something we could do. And so we started the firm. This was like, you know, end of 2017. And we brought together really uh, business people like myself and economists, a uh, mix of people that used to work in consulting, like Boston Consulting Group, McKinsey, and people that have worked in tech for, for a long time. And really applying, you know, the techniques that uh, they have been applied in, you know, large tech platform versatilized ones, right? Again, Uber, eBay, two distributed systems. So that's how sort of we got into the space. Uh, and uh, you know, it's been a wild ride since. Uh, you know, I think the industry uh, changes so quickly that. Um, um, it's hard to do research. I mean, we do a lot of research, but you know, research takes time. And by the time that you get closer to results, the industry has shifted, uh, you know, quite dramatically. Um, so it, 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 it is fascinating. And, you know, we do work both on permission networks. So like with you know, large clients like IBM, and then we do a lot of work on the permission side. And um, really it is, Fascinating how quickly these teams are able to iterate and you know show right. new products and um, so it's been it's been an interesting experience of ours for us given our background. So let's talk about the role, the role of economics and blockchain. So I believe you guys wrote that blockchain platforms must be incentive compatible to ensure stakeholder adoption and contribution in order to drive value for the system. Yeah. That statement is so loaded. It, it is. It is. So I'm going to try to like break it down into pieces, David, and, and explain why it's important. All of those things happen if we want to generate actual value, you know, uh, beyond the speculative aspect that that been going on. Um, so, so let's first think about, you know, what is it to be inside a platform for a platform, like, and 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 the the, the study of economics, you know. To take a step back, is like what does economics do is that help us to study choice, mm -hmm. right? So we're thinking about why should a user or a large corporate or an investor get involved in a particular project? Why should they choose to what we call from an economic standpoint opt in the market, right? And you can opt in in different ways, right? You can start trading, you can spend out notes, you can uh, dedicate some of your resources. Um, and the thing is, like different type of users are going to have different preferences, right? And we cannot we cannot change that. Right? Mm -hmm. That's a given. That's sort of the constraints in, if you think about it like building the model. You, David, are gonna have certain preferences, different from mine, different right. from them. And at the same time, you also have those have constraints, right? So the idea here is that maybe you wanna maximize your money by working more than twenty four hour a day, but the day is twenty four hour and you also need to sleep and, right. and you know do other things with yourself. So constraints may you know limit how much of the preferences we can get. And the role of economics is to get the platform to the right trade-off between these, right? So that we speak to the preferences of the stakeholder we're trying to attract, mm -hmm. but at the same time understand that given their constraints, we need to make it you know, valuable for them to contribute. Um, and the way we sort of think about it value in the long term, you know, as I said, is there's adoption, so people need to choose the platform, mm -hmm. and then they need to choose to dedicate whatever resources you're asking them to. So whether it's part of their hard drive, action power, financial resources, data, uh, and you need to, you know, every once in a while, they're gonna really think about, okay, is this still valuable for me to keep contributing? 
And so you need to make sure that like the incentives work over time. Right, right. I'm curious, so in terms of the differences between proof of work and proof of stake, yeah. proof of stake has a lot of those incentive models. You know, proof of work is you have to get your you know, hardware, you have to have compute, you have to have energy. It's those are hard costs. Hard costs, yes. And proof of stake is not that. It's much more of this kind of game theoretic. Yeah, and and I think you know there's been um, a big discussion in the community of sort of the uh, constraints that proof of work gives, and also the you know uh, a lot of proof of work based networks have seen a strong consolidation in the mining, uh, and you know we we actually have had some research on that. And so there's a big push now, and many networks, as you know, are moving towards proof of stake. And proof of stake actually economies are even more important mm -hmm. to your point because I can much more easily change my behavior by either selling my right. stake or delegating my stake to somebody else, right. depending on what type of incentive the network provides me. And you know, um, let me give you like a quick example. So think about the fact that uh, let's say you have a delegated proof of stake model where people use bots to automatically assign their, you know, their stake to whoever gives me the lowest fees, right? So I have, like, let's say, many nodes, and you know, I want to maximize my return, right? This is you know, basically you know, my preference. Um, and I automatically say, well, if David's going to offer me 1% fee and we're at 2%, I'm going to stake with, with David, right? It's the lowest fee. Now, the issue with this particular model is that if I am a malicious actor, so my preference is to destroy the network, I could potentially spin out a node at zero fees or negative fees, I'm paying, and automatically everybody's going to delegate their stake to me. All of a sudden, I have 51% of the network and I attack the network, right? So there are you know, to the point, like, a lot of game theory model that you should consider as you build this new type of consensus, which again, is not built on our asset to make sure that you don't get economic attacks and economic failure coming from there. And so thinking about users of proof of stake models and talking about adoption of some of these protocols and some of the applications that are being built on these protocols, if you can kind of give us, from your view, you know, globally, mm -hmm. how are we doing? That's a great question, maybe. How are we doing on adoption? So, I mean, if you look at the numbers uh, and compare these to, you know, traditional centralized network, we are at the sort of, you know, in the, in the curve of adoption, we're probably like my step number one, right? We are at the very, very, very early adopters. I think the, 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 the follow-on question is like, what's going to take, right, to get to, I'm not saying the killer app or mainstream, but even a broader, you know, set of people say, I do actually want to participate in this network. And if we go back to like the incentives, so, uh, you know, one thing that we always tell clients is like, people want simple, right? So uh, there is an enormous chance for all of these networks that are aiming, you know, use like the user base of, of actual consumer that consumer if the barrier of entry in terms of them learning how to use the system is too high they're just not gonna be making the investment right so if you think about traditional technologies like the iPhone like the car is press a button or even no button anymore with the, with the phone and, and it just works right you don't have to what is the last time that you read the manual of any technology that you want right and the problem here is that a lot of these networks like they're telling the user well you're gonna have to install a different software and use MetaMask and buy the token and you know use this smart contract and have the, the key and all of these things are, are friction right mm -hmm. between adoption and and your network so simplicity is very important uh, again because otherwise you're gonna speak only to very technically savvy people and there's not too many of those right. so I think 
UX UI and simplification of users are going to be extremely necessary if you want to like share towards a, a greater use. This is this is going to be there. Uh, and so, in thinking about some of these theories and game theories and game theoretic, so you guys talk about contract theory and social change. Social choice, yeah, social choice. So tell us how those play out. Yeah, so um, often we get asked, you know, we have that economic audience for probably 30 of the combined projects, and of course, teams are like, how do you know? How to do this? Like, what is? What are the fields that you leverage? Like, what is the science, you know, behind it? And uh, the way we explain this, um, you know, often I use this, this metaphor. So instead of thinking about blockchain and economies working with, with blockchain technology, think about yourself as being an aeronautical engineer at Boeing, and you're building a new type of plane that is very innovative, right? So you're building your plane, uh, and this could be very new. But the physics don't change, right? Gravity is not going to change, and you need physicists to explain how gravity is going to affect the plane, how the airflow is going to go. And all of those theory that science hasn't changed just because you have a new technology. Similarly, like blockchain is a new technology, people haven't changed, right? The way you incentivize people, the way economics work, as in, you just need to apply it. And there are certain fields that are very relevant. So. Contract theory is a subfield of microeconomics that deals with how you structure incentives. So generally speaking, when you think about incentives, it means that you want people to do certain actions, right? And um, from an economic standpoint, when we think about contracts, we think about a transaction, right? You are paying a no to provide you some sort of service. Right. Depending on how you structure that transaction, do I pay a cost? Do I pay after I receive the service? Yeah. Do I need to put anything at stake? Does the node have to put anything at stake? Do we have a dispute resolution system if I don't like what I've received? Depending on these design choices, you're going to get more or less people to adopt the system and more or less nodes to supply. Also, so you know, in every system, you have the demand and the supply, right. and you need to incentivize both, right? So, contract theory deals with how do you make all of these choices when you're thinking about the contract so that you can incentivize people to use this market. In social choice theory, instead, is thinking about collective decision making, right? So. Economists have been thinking about how as a group people make choices for themselves, so governance at the end of the day, for a very long time. And we apply this thing to you know, determine how are we going to get people to participate in distributed governance and what type of mechanism we need to put into place to get the right decision for the group, right? right. So are you going to vote every single time? Does everybody get to vote? Uh, do you delegate your vote? Do you pick a panel of experts to choose a particular very highly technical decision that maybe you know the average voter doesn't really know about? Mm -hmm. What type of information do you provide to the voters before they vote, right? Because you know if we look historically at most blockchain platform, participation has been pretty low. Right. And this is not too surprising because it's quite difficult to understand what's going on for the average user. And so what happens is that you have, you know, very low turnout and this is potentially a risk because if there's a very determined person that wants to have their saying and nobody else cares, then you have situations where, you know, a very small percentage of the network can actually make some pretty deep changes to, right. to it. So And we've seen that play out recently. And we've seen that play out in MakerDAO, uh, you know, with the, the change of the basis uh, of, of, of uh, I think it was 400 basis point, uh, but one individual. And we've seen this in permission. Like, so 
Um, if you think about, um, you know, in a peer ledger, the technical committee, people didn't show up to elect the new committee, and now IBM has six of the 11 seats. Right. Right? Which is more than 50%. And this is supposed to be a network where, and again, it's not the fault of particularly of IBM, it's just that people didn't even show up to vote. Right. And this is an issue that we've seen both on the enterprise side and the permissionless side. And again, it goes back to the incentives, right? What is the incentive for me to actually participate in the governance? It's not enough to, for you to tell me, well, you have a vote because you have bought tokens or because, you know, you're participating in, the, in this consortium. Right. There needs to be something for me. And again, it always goes back to what are my preferences and what are the constraints? And when you think about governance, the constraints are always time, right? People are very busy. And there is actually a reason, I mean, we often say this, that in, in traditional you know, corporate governance, people are professionally board members. I mean, there are people whose profession, yeah. and it's just because they, you know, the economy overall is built on specialization of labor, and there are people who literally dedicate their careers being board members. Now, I'm not advocating that we should have professional board members for blockchain networks, but that is a potential solution in some way, right? So I'm curious, as an, someone who focuses on economics and has the classical training in economics, there are some very striking things that are happening globally right now. Germany could technically be in a recession. We've seen yield inversions here in the United States. We see the effects of a trade war starting to come yeah. through. Are you, you know, from a standpoint, from a classical economic standpoint, do you also see a rationale for digital assets like Bitcoin to potentially be that stored value when crisis happens? So that, that's a great question, David. I, we have not seen it, right? Uh, uh, unlike with gold, for example, I mean, you see very clearly that, you know, when people fight from risk, yep. gold price goes up. This is, uh, we haven't really seen that with Bitcoin. Um, I think it's hard to know because um, gold has been around for a very long time and it also has a certain underlying value because it's used mm -hmm. in a lot of different functions. Bitcoin is store value for the purpose of store value, so it might. Um, uh, but at the same time, we don't see the property that gold has reflected in Bitcoin, right? So um, we, you know, as a firm, we don't have a position on this. And, and also like more generally as a firm, we try to steer away from uh, providing any sort of um, advice mm -hmm. of, you know, this could be a better investment yeah. or another because, you know, we need to retain our independence. You know, we're the main economic auditor in this space. And so we want to make sure that, you know, when clients hire us, they know that, you know, we really only are going to, you know, answer to them. Right. And that's why, you know, as a firm, we have no investors. We don't hold any tokens ourselves. It's yeah. really we need to keep our independence. Uh, so it's it, it might happen. Yeah. Uh, but but I'm not going to, you know, state that we have a position as a firm and we don't even want to have a position because, you know, we want to retain our independence over the... As we've seen a lot of projects over the last year kind of ditch the, the kind of the ICO model yeah. and they've gone to equity and they have equity deals that convert to tokens. And so you mentioned tokenomics. Yeah. So I imagine you work with your clients to help them with those models. Yeah, exactly. How does that work? So if you think about a token, um, you know, token can represent various different types of things. And we always think about it as what sort of rights does it provide the token holder, right? So 
classic example is is you know sort sort of a security so it gives you a right to a stream of income uh, or is it sort of more a utility so the, 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 the example I always provide is is it a share in United Airlines or is it a United Air Mile right right is you know airlines have run utility token model for a very long time very successfully That's right close ones uh, uh, we love I, I love it most of my example always related to airlines so the question is like what does the token do right so we, we sit down with the team and most projects ultimately are in the air mile segment in terms of what the token actually performs but they also need to provide some sort of like return for investors so you have this hybrid of it's a mile but it's also also kind of a share right um and you know there are sort of few things that we really focus on so one is going to be and it's very macroeconomic involved is like what is the monetary policy of this token right is it capped uncapped um generally speaking if you want to run a successful currency um you don't cap the currency right no currency is capped uh no mile program is capped uh, because you want to make sure that there is enough currency as the economy grow or the program grows that well, you there's a scarcity factor obviously yeah yeah but but and, and the, the point you want to keep a fairly uh stable medium exchange right. right so you want to reflect how much economic activity is going on and sort of like reflect that into the market spike now the other thing that you know a lot of clients focus on and this is more on the investment side is that investors hold a very large chunk of these tokens and there are ways to manage your lockups and you know when you actually allow people to sell this that are going to affect the price in different ways right and uh, you know generally speaking we have seen a lot of concerns if a lot of tokens become you know accessible to the market that this is going to have a fairly negative impact on price right so you know and and the other thing is of course how do you manage sort of your yeah. treasury, right? A lot of these networks have a significant amount of treasury that is going to finance the development of over years, and they want to balance that uh, as sort of like, okay, we want to retain value in the treasury by keep having certain sort of target price. A lot of project companies okay, this is what is the target price that's going to allow me to actually develop this, um, versus, of course, the fact that they do need to sell this over time to finance it. So there's, it's always like, you know, downward pressure has people into cash other tokens to, you know, paying fiat their actual cost because unfortunately up to today, no one really accepts token right. for their, you know, paying your rent or paying taxes. Right. If that eventually were to change and we have a more of a closed loop economy that you can do more things with token, things may change. But to, up to today, you know, project teams, you know, you know, they, they need to pay everything in dollars or yen or whatever currency. So, so this was a super interesting conversation. Um, where can people find out more about Prism Group? Reach out to you. I love this marriage of economics and digital assets and blockchain. So, where can people find out more? So, uh, we have a very active social media presence. It's at Prism P R Y S M Economics. Uh, we have uh, dozens and dozens of videos on our YouTube channel. We we have a medium with lots of articles about token economics, incentives, governance, design. Uh, we have a monthly newsletter uh, where we have a lot of interesting content. Uh, it's easy to sign up for our website, www.prisongroup.io. Uh, and, and of course, at events, we are, you know, here San Francisco is one of the co-hosts. We'll be at Singapore Fintech Festival in November. We'll be at uh, London Fintech Connect in December. So we, you know, we are most of the events. So, you know, feel free to reach out in person if you see us. Awesome. So this was Guido Molinari from Prism Group here at 
San Francisco Blockchain Week. Great conversation about this narrative economics and blockchain. Thank you, Guido, for coming on. Thank you, David. It was a real pleasure. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on base layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space in the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.